Hey everybody, on this week's episode, I get to share my interview with Chris Bishop of Bishop Bikes in Baltimore, Maryland. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I interview someone in the bike frame building world, and then I get to share it with all of you. That's why you need to subscribe uh, to the show so that you don't miss out on a single episode. And uh, and this week, I get to share my interview with Chris Bishop uh, of Bishop Bikes. And if you follow frame building at all, I'm sure you know his work. It's uh, it's amazing. It's so refined. Uh, the the attention to detail is amazing. The aesthetic decisions I think are just perfect. Uh, his bikes just look freaking awesome. I've been a huge fan since forever. Uh, he started building bikes in like 2005 or so. Uh, he took a class and um, and he's been building bikes since then. And uh, yeah, they're just they're remarkable remarkable bikes. And um, so I'm really stoked to have him on the show this week to to ask him all about you know bike frame building and his process, how he got started, and uh, you know like what you know what what sort of inspires him and, and those sorts of things. I also want to give a shout out in this episode to uh, Anna Schwinn and the Bike Rumor podcast. So uh, there was just an episode that was released of the Bike Rumor podcast that Anna Schwinn guest hosted, uh, wherein she interviews Bina Belinky, the owner and you know coordinator of the Philly Bike Expo, and it's a great episode. I've listened to that. I think it's a you know I had Bina on as a guest on this show, and I'm really glad that I was able to do that. But I think Anna's interview with Bina is even better. You should definitely check that out. And then also, uh, you know, Anna is doing a series of interviews with frame builders who will be at the Philly Bike Expo. Uh, so like, you know, over the next four weeks, probably once a week, I'm not sure exactly the schedule, but they will be releasing episodes uh, that, you know, of, of different frame builders. I think Jackie from Untitled Cycles and Megan Dean from Moth Attack, Daniel Schoen from Schoen Studio and Julianne Petalino from Petalino Bikes who, uh, you know, I think was episode three on this podcast. But anyway, uh, all really cool interviews that I'm looking forward to listening to that I'm sure going to be awesome. Uh, Anna Schwinn always does a lot of cool, like, journalistic stuff uh, for, you know, the bike industry and the bike frame building biz. Lots of cool um, interviews and things that I've really appreciated over the years. So thank you for doing that, Anna. And, uh, and I wanted to uh, promote it uh, for anyone who might not be aware of it because it's really cool. If you like this show, you're pretty sure you're going to like uh, listening to Anna's interviews. So where I'm cutting into the interview with Chris here, uh, I had just asked him about how he got started by actually taking more than one bike frame building class. Well, I was pretty anxious to, you know, jump in. And initially I signed up for the classes out in Oregon and they didn't have anything available until, you know, I think the spring or summer. And then Brew's class popped up with Steve Garn, and it was close so and inexpensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, you know, let me, you know, try this class and see how I feel about it. And, uh, you know, then do the UBI class. So I was in Steve Barnes, you know, very first frame building class oh, wow. uh, ever. So, yeah, 
it was a little bit of a crash course and frame building and uh you know it was tig welding mm-hmm. which i didn't know anything about and found that i didn't and we also brazed and i enjoyed the brazing more than the tig welding mm-hmm. you know tig welding is a lot to learn at once yeah you, know, you have the pedal you have the rod and then you have the torch yeah and the, it's just you need the muscle memory because it's too many things to think about at once so you need to have done it enough so that you don't need to think about all those things and so you can't you just can't learn it quickly yeah <laughs> so it was very difficult and the brazing i enjoyed uh you know more and my background with bikes I was really more interested in the lugged and fillet raised bikes because that's what I had ridden the most as a messenger because everyone, you know, was getting rid of their steel bikes and moving on to aluminum. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of Italian steel lugged bikes out there for, you know, relatively cheap. And that's what, you know, my first great road bike was and then track bike. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I gravitated towards that. So the class was great. You know, Steve was very knowledgeable um, on a lot of levels. I think that, you know, it made me (laughs) realize that I enjoyed the brazing more than the pig welding. Mm -hmm. And so I came away from that wanting to learn more about that. And I was also a fan of Yamaguchi. And his work and you know progressive designs mm-hmm. and again i wanted to do it take a, another class sooner than later i can't really remember the circumstances as to why i ended up going to yamaguchi instead of ubi but i ended up signing up for his course and taking that in the following summer of 2006 and uh you know, I enjoyed that course a lot. And that was, you know, all I took a fillet brazing course with him. But then you also built a lug fork. So you got to do some silver brazing and mm-hmm. uh, bronze. Yeah, I can see the work that you have done and, you know, sort of, you know, made your reputation based on is a lot more in line with, you know, like what you see with uh, Yamaguchi, you know, all the brazed and the, I don't know, his, his style definitely, uh, seems more in line with what you're going after. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was an influence for sure. Yeah. Um, And, you know, because he made so many track bikes, we saw a lot of them on the road as messengers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they were always unique and clean. So, you know, uh, definitely an influence aesthetically. And, you know, he was very knowledgeable uh, about tubing. He designed a lot of True Tempers uh, arrow tubing, oh. some of the, the tapered tubing um, that they had, because he was building, uh, you know, bikes for the U.S. national team. Yeah. So when steel was the material, he was at the forefront of that. And, uh, you know, I always liked his bikes because he utilized you know all these shaped tubes and tapered seat tubes and yeah stuff that i still use to this day so he's definitely a hands-on teacher you know everyone learns differently and 
you know, if you, I, I feel like if you need a more structured environment, UBI would probably be the way to go. <laughs> but, you know, if you learn by watching and, you know, just doing it, I, you know, Yamaguchi is a great teacher. He also, you did everything by hand, you know, you, he's like, there's a milling machine. Here's your half round files. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we hand mitered everything, which, you know, was really the way to learn initially because when you get home mm-hmm. and you want to pursue it, much cheaper to buy half round files on a milling machine <laughs> and, you know, all, all the fixturing to miter a tube. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, once you're good at hand lettering a tube, you can do it relatively quickly. It's just, you know, making a living. I now have milling machines which just speed up the process. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the hand mitered tubes weren't any, you know, they were accurate. It just took a lot longer to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you really have to have, you know, a machine for every fixture to make it worthwhile. Because if you have to break down and set up these fixtures, you're not going to, you might as well hand miter it. But now I have, you know, a main tube mitering set up, a seat stay set up, a chain stay set up, and they just sit on, you know, the milling machines, and that's all they do. So yeah. You have, you know, a lot of metal doing one thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I and mean, I have, you, you look at also, you know, if you live in the Northeast or something, a lot of these old machines, you know, a small horizontal like a Nichols mill or something, uh, you know, if you keep your eyes peeled, you can find those machines for under a thousand dollars and then you put a fixture on it and so you know it's like i don't know on the one hand it's like if you want to buy a whole bunch of these and, and put them in your shop it seems kind of expensive especially for the fixtures that go on them on the other hand though it's like what you're getting for it is like a machine tool for like hundreds of dollars it's kind of crazy uh to my mind um how affordable it is in a way you know that like if you wanted to build something like that it would cost a fortune but here you have something that already has a spindle on it and it has a uh, it has ways, and you can uh, you can just bolt something to the table and start cutting. No, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, all the machinery is something I never considered or thought about until I got in the frame building. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people just you know imagine wielding a torch all day, <laughs> which is probably the thing you do the least. Um, so the machine tools and you know, all the fixturing and whatnot was something that came, you know, came with frame building that I didn't really realize was going to be there, but I enjoy now. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. The machinery for what you're getting is nothing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) You know, to industry, these machines are not totally worthless, but mostly totally worthless. And, you know, it used to be this is how stuff got made was with all sorts of different manual machines. And so, especially I think in the Northeast and the Midwest, but different places in the world, you'll just, there's tons of this stuff just sitting around. It's going to get melted down for scrap every week. And so you can, if you know where to look, you can find stuff pretty cheap sometimes. It's it's cool because, you know, for, (laughs) so like uh, who else wants an old horizontal mill? It's like not that many people have a use for a horizontal mill, but for bike frame building, it's really useful. And so if you if you find one, you know, it's usually a, it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, I mean, the 
the horizontal, I have a Vernon. Most of my machinery is all old U.S. machines, yeah. which are pretty much bomb-proof. Um, I mean, my chain stay fixtures on an old Vernon mill, and it was actually free. The guy's like, just get it out of here. Um, it, you know, it's pretty clapped out, but all I have to do is run it into the hole saw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I don't change anything other than, you know, that. But, you know, the motor is really nice. It's, you know, single phase, which is good, too. Oh, cool. Most of the machinery is all three phase. Mm-hmm. You know, I pretty much have all the small or medium mills. I mean, the biggest mill I have is a small Rockwell, you know, which yeah. has an R8 spindle. I have a lot of, you know, I had a uh, Morse paper, too. You know, it's only wow. six and a half inch, which... <laughs> No, that thing needs to go. And then I have two Lindley jig borders, and one I use for uh, my seat stay lightering, and the other is almost my primary middle. Wow. I mean, I don't do too much machining, yeah. but it it does what I need, and it's a very accurate machine. Yeah. But, you know, what? I really don't need to turn the head or anything like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you, you know, I haven't done it, when I first got interested in bike frame building, I was really drawn to, you know, work like yours. And, um, you know, some of the first frame builders that I ever found out about was like, uh, uh, Brian Hollingsworth and Ian Sutton were making bikes in Boston, uh, Icarus and Royal H. I thought those were really cool. And I was aware of your work pretty early on. And that sort of stuff was my favorite. Uh, you know, the braised and the, the hand-filed stuff and, you know, sleeves and different things. I haven't done that in a long time. Uh, and I've been more interested in, like, you know, machinery and uh, TIG-welded process and uh, and stuff, you know, the last five years or something. But, uh, you know, with, with, with doing all the hand-filing and the carving and the details that you do, um, where are you sourcing hand-files? Uh, I, I buy a lot of hand-files off eBay. Oh, yeah? Um, Just the old, like, American ones? Yeah. I mean, that's a problem. I mean, you know, Nicholson went to Mexico and then Brazil or something, but those files are terrible. You know, they're soft. Yeah. Um, but the old Nicholson files are really nice, so you have to find those on eBay. And uh, then there's, you know, old Lennox, um, or, yeah, the Nicholson. You know, you can get the... Let's see what other preferred files mm-hmm. are nice. Um, the Grabe files, you know, all the needle files. You know, that's the way to go. And getting a good set of Riffler files and needle files is really important because a cheap set just is worthless. They're <laughs> just not sharp, and you know, you might as well, you know, not waste your time. Yeah, and you use uh, that stuff a lot for like cleaning up shorelines and things. Uh, I, I just try to braid everything cleanly so you don't have to yeah. use any file for that. Um, yeah, but yeah, you know, you'll get a booger here or there. You know, um, early on you'd use it more. Now, if you prep your lugs and just from brazing doing a lot of brazing, you mm-hmm. know, just keep it clean. 
I don't have time to clean up shorelines after <laughs> you're breathing. <laughs> yeah, really. So, you know, but yeah, it does take time to get to that point. I mean, you know, obviously I didn't start, you know. Yeah, with, with 15 with years of experience. grazing skills because it's yeah. something that, you know, there's no way around it. It's just going to take time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Yamaguchi, just like practice, practice, practice. So, you know, you just got to get in there and do it over and over until you, you, you get it. But, you know, embracing can be tricky too, you know, with lugs and <clears throat> tubes and whatnot that aren't perfect. So, you know, you're working with imperfect things, you know. So, I mean, one of the key tools that I use for brazing is a hammer and brass punches just to, you know, hammer down the lugs. Because if you have gaps, you know, that's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, getting those lugs as close to the tube as possible is key. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd say that's the one thing that I use a lot that you don't really see. Mm-hmm people using but it it definitely will help with the end result of your breathing you know keeping things real clean um is also key with silver brazing so yeah well i saw you posted a photo of some lug sets that you had made and imported that have a different angle to them for what what is the idea there it's because the because of like a with a larger tire you have a higher bottom bracket so you need a different down tube angle at the head tube and at the at the bottom bracket show yeah i i didn't design those lugs okay. i just you know basically you know i i i'm kind of in the process of doing you know a lug design but i just kept on running into the problem of the down tube head tube lugs they're pretty much all 60 degrees i'd honestly go to about 58 the you know ones that i could import without having that made was 59 i mean what basically happens is you know back in the day everyone was riding 23 tires if you're riding anything bigger than that you're on a touring bike Uh Um, but now you know I don't like running anything smaller than a 32, um, which could be a 28 on a wide rim, which, you know, is a whole nother story. Yeah. But, because, <laughs> I mean, what's on the side of a tire isn't the size of a tire mean anything. anymore. Yeah. When, yeah. But, you know, I feel like that's been a huge jump in bicycle technology is the larger tires because i'm you know not going any slower and you're getting a more comfortable ride you're going faster you know bikes are handling better and you can run lower pressures and uh there's a lot of benefit to that but you know for example you know a bike with a 25 tire and a you know seven millimeter drop is gonna be a lot lower than when you put the 32s on, you know, I think mm-hmm. it's about a six millimeter difference. So your bottom bracket raises with those tires on it. So in order to, you know, just bring it back down, people are like, oh, the bottom bracket's low. It's not low. It's just adjusted for a 28 or 32 tire. Mm-hmm. So you're really just bringing it back down to where the road bike, you know, originally had yeah. a 23. And, you know, I like, lower bottom brackets than that i usually 
like a 265 bottom bracket height. So depending on the tire size, the drop is just going to yeah. you know, be determined by that. Um, but what happens when you do that, and it's not a big issue on a Philip raised or TIG bike, is that that head tube, down tube angle changes, as well as the seat tube, down tube lug or angle, you know. So it's hard to, and this is a more modern uh, lug set, so it has a 36 head tube and a 35 or 34.9 uh, down tube. Mm-hmm. And it's it's near impossible to move those. <laughs> and <laughs> unlike, you know, the older lug sets where there was a lot of different down tube angles available uh, in the newer format, they're just, there's not very many lug sets out there. So, you know, what was that, what's out there now is pretty either it was 60 degrees or 61 even. And I'm like, you know, that doesn't work <laughs> at all. Yeah. So, you know, it was just, uh, you know, I had to get a certain quantity just to get the lugs I need. So I'm just, I'm not trying to get in the lug business. I'm just trying to, you know, fill the excess that I'm not yeah. going to use. Yeah. What you, yeah. Don't build it be above and beyond your own needs um yeah, yeah it's funny and so that's not the only lug set i use either so, yeah you know i i haven't thought about uh well i mean not that i'm unaware of this stuff but i just haven't had to think about it much because uh most of the you know bike stuff that i've been doing uh when i have been doing frame building over the last five years or so is all tig welded so i'm i'm thinking more about you know especially like this mountain bike that i was building the last six months or so on my youtube channel it was uh i was really kind of trying to um you know try out this like uh, forward geometry sort of thing you know really long and and slack front end where like it's like a 65 head angle and like the the front center is 850 millimeters it's just like a really super long and slack front end and i figured I'd try it for fun and I'd kind of push it to the extreme to see, you know, what it's like. But anyway, meanwhile, you know, some of the angles that you're getting on these joints are like kind of ridiculous compared to normal. And, you know, if you, (laughs) it's funny because with TIG, it's just like, it is what it is, you know, it just ends up being what it ends up being. And you design based on, you know, the, the driving parameters of, you know, how you want it to handle and how you want your weight to be over the wheels. But (laughs) you start to think about lugs and it's like, you know, you're fighting over a degree or two. That's a, that's madness, you know, that's a... Uh... Yeah, yeah, the lug jail. <laughs> but... <laughs> but to see the yeah. work that you do with lugs, though, it's like, I can't argue with that, man. It's gorgeous. Uh, you gotta... Yeah, I mean, I I like to push, you know, the boundaries with lugs. You know, I try to make a really modern lug road bike, and, you know, I, they handle and feel great you know, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel like an old lug bike. And I think, you know, while I loved all those old lug bikes now with, you know, the bigger tires, it's been a big game changer in bikes. Yeah. And sadly, even if those old bikes fit big tires, they're just not designed for them. Mm-hmm. You know, once you know, you might be able to stick a 32 or, probably just a 28 but um you know once that bottom bracket gets high it's just yeah you're sacrificing handling yeah you know it's not going to be as stable and it's not going to descend as well Mm -hmm. and uh 
then there's front end geometry issues sometimes. But yeah, I mean, just taking some of the old designs and, you know, using modern tubing and geometry and executing the, the brazing and filing at the highest level can just change the overall aesthetic and outcome because a lot of those old bikes are just production bikes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in memory, they were beautiful. And when I go look at them again, I'm like, man, <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is really rudimentary. It's like, yeah, <laughs> they're pretty rough, you uh -huh. know, but <laughs> you know, the, the longer you do it, the more you learn and, you know, things have definitely changed since yeah. I started. Yeah, definitely. Now. Yeah, when I uh, when I talked to Brian Chapman in the interview I did with him, you know, he was talking about when he did bike painting and and the things that he would see on these old mm -hmm. you know Italian frames and stuff, and uh, you know, just realizing yeah, like they're production bikes and uh, they weren't show pieces. And I think when I had Brian Hollingsworth on this show, he was talking about how like uh, you know American frame builders tend to. Um, kind of polish things a lot more than you know like these other bikes you know the mozzies and colnagos and stuff they were like they're they're production bikes and uh not to say that they're bad bikes but they're production bikes so you'd see file marks and stuff here and there and they were just you know not not held to the same sort of uh bar <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean they couldn't be because i mean you know it's so expensive to do that yeah it work you know it's yeah you know kind of overlooked you know it's like putting the frame together is you know it takes a lot of skill to do accurately and have the frame you know the tolerance is really high but you know doing all that finish work it not only takes a lot of skill but you know it can be a little tedious and you know takes a lot of time mm -hmm. so you know you just it's just not something you can do in a production environment yeah. and make any money. Yeah. So you pretty much have to, you know, charge a lot of money for it. Yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> at the time, you know, those bikes, while expensive, were pretty cheap. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Definitely. What do you, uh, you know, you mentioned more, you know, using like more modern tubing. I don't know that much about this. I'm sure you know so much more than me. Um, you know, steel was the dominant bicycle frame material, you know, up through like the 80s. And then in the 90s, it kind of started to change. And there's been development since the early 90s, of course, in steel alloys, you know, air hardening and heat treated tubes. And, and even still today, I'm hearing some things about, you know, this new tube from, uh, you know, this company or that company. How has you know, like you, you rode a whole bunch of these classic bikes when you were a bike messenger and, uh, and now you're building bikes, you know, how do the newer alloys of steel change the, the ride characteristic of the frame and like what that allows you to do? It, one of the big things, I mean, you can build layer frames for sure. Um, you know, because a lot of the tubes on the old bikes, the wall thicknesses were a lot uh, thicker mm -hmm. and heavier. Um, so you can use bigger diameter tubes, which will give you, you know, more 
Diameter is always going to trump wall thickness. So if you can use a bigger diameter tube in the bottom bracket area, you're going to get a stiffer bottom bracket and drivetrain, um, which is one of the... You don't want your frame to be overly stiff. I mean, one of the things about steel is that it has a lively feel. And you mm -hmm. can definitely build a steel bike that's going to be overly stiff and be unpleasant to ride. Um, and that's not what you, what I shoot for. You know, you just want mm -hmm. to find the balance of, you know, how lively the frame is. And, you know, that can depend on the rider. And that's one thing that, you know, you don't see in custom frames is that the bike is going to handle the way the rider wants it to. So it can be stiff. It can be lively. I always try to, you know, make the top end a little livelier, livelier with a, you know, lighter weight top tube, but you want your down tube and chain stays to be stiff and um, just finding that balance for each rider is something you can really fine tune in a custom bike where production bikes, you know, they might have one tube set for, you know, a 52 to a 62. Mm -hmm. So in the middle, the, you know, frame's going to handle great, you know, it might be overly stiff on the small side and overly flexy on the larger side. Yeah. So, you know, I'd say, you know, that's one thing I experienced. I mean, I'm, I rode, you know, about a 58. So most of the bikes were fine. I feel like depending on the tubes on the frames I was riding, you could feel a difference. I mean, and also geometries, you know, in hindsight, there's bikes that were just beautiful and I wanted them to feel great, but they just didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but I'd say, you know, with the modern tubing, you can make a lightweight frame that is going to be dialed into the rider, you know, with so many different wall thicknesses, butt lengths and gauges, mm -hmm. you know, until I do the sizing and then the CAD you know, then you see all the lengths of your tubes and you go through them and see which tube's going to work best. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the tubing industry is interesting, you know. Unfortunately, True Temper disappeared, which had a lot of options for all their tube diameters, which is great. Um, so... You know, Columbus has quite a bit of tubes available, but, you know, for a while there, a lot of them weren't really suitable for lugs because the butts were so short. You know, you have like a 40 millimeter butt length, which just really isn't long enough to work with, you know, hmm. once you get the miter in there and depending on the frame size, yeah, there's no, you know, your lugs going past the butt and that's isn't something you really want. So, mm -hmm. um, then very well stepped up, but they seem to have disappeared. Um, so, you know, there's Japanese tubing out there. I use a combination of tubes and even have some tubes, um, made for me. 
Um, do you uh, do you use much like new old stock? Like I know you, I would see you build bikes around like the Columbus, the Gilco, those fluted tubes, like the top tube. But do you use a whole lot of uh, like old stock stuff that you find, um, you know, through eBay or different places, or is it still mostly uh, new stuff that you're using? I mean, the majority of it's new stuff, you know. Um, I built, you know, a bunch of the Gilco tubes. I mean, not. Colmago was a big influence on me, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> um, you know, from to the, in the messenger in the nineties. Yeah. So it was fun to build with, but it's a pain in the butt because you have to all your miters have to be in phase with the flute. So <laughs> you know. Yeah, you <laughs> it's can't. A lot more work. You can't hold that in like a normal tube block or in a normal mitering fixture exactly the same or. Yeah, I mean, there's that, but, you know, you want all your flutes to be in phase yeah. with the front triangle as mm -hmm. well as, you know, centered as, you know, <laughs> as best you can, depending on the frame size. Yeah. So there's a lot more time you have to spend dialing all that in. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's fun to build with. I, I It's heavy. You know, there's yeah. actually different gauges. I've had SLX versions of the Gilco that have a you know internal riffling, and then I've had SL versions of it. So they basically could take any of their tubes and just put it through the mandrel to you know make the flute. Mm -hmm. So, is there a functional um, benefit to that, or an alleged functional benefit, or is it mostly aesthetic? It's supposed to be stiffer. In fact, where the flutes are, the diameter of the tube gets a little larger. Mm -hmm. So there's probably, you know, a little more stiffness there. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, <laughs> it's, I, I, I'm not going to sell a bike saying it's going to be any stiffer than, you know, a yeah. regular round tube. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of an aesthetic thing, I'd yeah. say, more than anything else. They do feel good. I, I have a road bike, and, mm -hmm. you know, they're nice tubes. I mean, yeah. but they're not light. <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> you know, you that. Um, there's, there's a couple bikes that you've made in your time building bikes that will be like burned in my memory forever. And one of them, one of my all time favorite bikes that you made was would have been like five or more years ago now probably, but it was the, it was the track bike that you made with Columbus MS multi-shape tubing that had like a blue and green and I forget all the paint on it. And it had Dura-Ace 10 pitch track, uh, drivetrain on it. You remember, you, you remember that bike, right? Oh yeah. That yeah, bike, I mean, that was oh my God, that thing was so beautiful. for me. Oh yeah? <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a frame builder, you know, I won awards at the show. Was that NABs in North Carolina or something? I think that was in Austin. Okay. 2010? I don't know. I can't remember anymore. The year. But, yeah, I, you know, I found out about the MS tube set and was really intrigued by it. And, you know, shape tubing was cool and the fact that they had lugs for yeah, all the different shapes so made cool. it even cooler. And, you know, because if it was just a Philip Brady's frame or something, it wouldn't have been as, 
unique in my mind. Um, I use that tube set and that particular group because they were both, you know, cutting edge technologies at the time that, <laughs> you know, a component manufacturer was, you know, trying to push envelope and a tubing mm-hmm. manufacturer was trying to push it, you know, the envelope. I mean, the premise behind the tube set was that every tube on the bike was, you know, specifically shaped for the stresses and torsion it was going to be under on, you know, the chain stay, seat stay. Well, actually, the seat stays were unique, but down tube, top tube, because the down tube was actually a teardrop, but it was flipped upside down, which is kind of interesting. Um, the chain stays were the most interesting because uh, one was oval, and then the other one was a triangle. Yeah, that's so, crazy. And seeing where yeah. that fits into the bottom <laughs> bracket shell, where one of the sockets is a freaking triangle, that's amazing. You know, like, yeah, because you're like you're saying, like, if it was if it was lug or if it was fillet braced or even TIG welded, it'd be cool. But like seeing the puzzle pieces actually fit together that you had all those pieces to make it uh, go together. Yeah, and that was a tricky one with tubing blocks. I mean, the top tube was kind of like a lemon shape. <laughs> lemon. Um, but, yeah. So imagine I mean, that in their like, like sales a... brochure. They're like talking about the advantages of the tube shape, and it's like the lemon profile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the seat tube was a tapered tube, but it was like 28.6 at the bottom bracket to like 26.0, and it takes like Weird. a 25.0 seat or 25-4 seat posts. Uh-huh. So, you know, those are actually easier to find than you think. Um, <laughs> but, and then I used the Columbus Air seat stays because it just came with like some 16 round and I was like, you know, we needed another shape in here mm-hmm. um, to, you know, make it more interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that's, that was a lot of fun. And then the Grupo being a 10-pitch Grupo, you know, which Shimano essentially micro-sized the chain and cogs and chain rings so that the diameters would be smaller and therefore lighter. But it's a really torquey feel. I've ridden it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So and it, it, it's hard to explain, but it's, feels like it engages quicker, huh. I, which doesn't make sense on a direct drive frame, but it just had this really interesting feel. Huh. Um, but, that's, that's yeah, so cool. I mean, can you apparently... Get, can you even get, like, replacement chains anymore? The chains are one of the most expensive parts of the group. <laughs> um, I mean, you can find them on eBay yeah. here or there. I haven't looked in a long time, but... Yeah, I mean, you were dropping like 150 bucks on like an NOS chain. You know, it's like all the consumable parts of the of the yeah. group were the most expensive. You know, yeah. the cogs, the chain rings, and the chains especially because those are the things that wore out. Mm-hmm. Actually, the cogs and the and the chain rings were long lasting. In fact, the chains are too. They're really beefy. I mean, while they're you know shorter. I mean, the pins are thick, the plates are thick. It's a, and it has an interesting sound. It's like a tank tread going around. Weird. Um, yeah, but it was, it was 
definitely interesting. And the, uh, the BCD on the cranks was, you know, its own. It might have been 118. I don't know, but it was, it was an odd one. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you can't just put and a then, different you know, chain ring on there. No, and the cogs, you know, had its own thread pitch and size too. Oh my it, god! For the hubs, so you had to have the hubs, <laughs> cogs, lock ring. It was all specific to that group. Wow. Um, but I thought it was interesting to, you know, put yeah. it on that frame. Definitely. You know, it was interesting bicycle technologies. Yeah, all combined in the one bike. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that stuff. When I was talking to to Brian Hollingsworth on the show here, we were talking a little bit about like those sort of like dead ends where like there was a new thing, and from what people knew at the time, maybe it was going to be the next thing. You didn't know, but then in hindsight, you're like, yeah, that was immediately a flop. Like they do, they did that for a year, and then they pulled the plug or something. And that kind of stuff is so yeah. interesting. Then, yeah, it still goes on. I mean, you, yeah. know, you got BB thirty. Yeah, that, that didn't last. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was like BB30, then it was like Pressfit 30, which you're like, oh, that's a little better. Uh-huh. But there's nothing like a threaded bottom bracket. Yeah, um, no, it just makes, it, it, it lowers the bar for a lot of things. You know, you don't need to have as much experience wrenching. You don't need to have as tight of a tolerance on the frame. You don't, you know, it's just everything gets a little bit easier if there's threads. Well, yeah, and also just, performance wise i mean yeah. they would creak and you know there's all kinds of issues especially you know aluminum frames you have a steel bearing against the aluminum frame you know you know it's going to win the steel <laughs> so you could ovalize your you know because the tolerances had to be so tight you know if it started getting loose then you just had a hot mess down there yeah um you know with the teeth 47 i guess now which is basically i guess all the same dimensions but threaded mm-hmm. it just makes it a lot easier do you do much in, yeah. do you do much of that or do you do mostly english thread yeah i mean i all the frames that i build i i build with english thread and and really lug bottom brackets yeah i even on my fillet frames i use lug bottom brackets yeah just because of the way i like to build frames Mm-hmm. Um, I do my bottom brackets in the one heat cycle. Um, so, I mean, because of the way my fixture with the anvil is, I do the, and it's on a cone. So if you're using lugs, you got to hang a little bit out the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can pull any excess silver out there. So I usually do the head tube, down tube joint, um, then I miter the top tube, C tube, raise in the dropouts, miter the chain stays. I miter the top tube on the mill, you know, from the CAD, so I know that that's going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And I actually sent my fixture up with the top tube. And then I uh, stick the chain stays down tube and C tube in there after I finish the down tube lug and face it. Mm-hmm. And then I just braise the bottom bracket all at once. So yeah. it only goes through one heat cycle. And the fact that the fixture and my alignment table are both based off of the bottom bracket shell being square. Then I just 
chase and face the bottom bracket and I have to spend a lot of time, you know, facing the bottom bracket accurately so that when I put it on alignment table, it's going to be accurate. And if, you know, you braise <clears throat> the bottom bracket more than once, you know, it warps a little bit. So, you know, it usually cones up. Um, and having to only face it and clean it up once, you know, moving forward from there, your bottom bracket's going to be perfect and held in the fixture perfectly so that, you know, when you're putting the top tube and the seat stays on, it's going to be, you know, perfect in the fixture and then on the alignment table as well. Mm-hmm. So that's my process. Everyone's is a little different. Some people braise the whole frame all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, but that works for me, and it builds a really straight frame that I don't have to cold set. So yeah. I like that. The well, that's a big trick. Me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, silver brazing, you know, things don't move around as much as fillet brazing. I mean, the frame I built at Yamaguchi's course, man, he was jumping up and down on that thing like a trampoline, and I was like, <laughs> I don't want that to happen again. <laughs> Obviously, my heat control is not good, and, you know, you're just learning to lay a fillet. You're not even, you know, focusing yeah. on the heat as much. You're just yeah. happy to make it happen, but you get it on the alignment table, and it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you don't want to sell bikes like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh you worked as a bike messenger for a long time and uh i don't know i guess there's this like reputation that you know if you're a bike messenger and you're on the streets all day you know riding hard trying to trying to make your deliveries that you're probably beating up your stuff and i'm sure some people ride harder than other people but like did you did you experience uh for yourself or people that you knew a lot of frame failures and then did that like later inform your judgment about like how you went on to build frames, you know, like trying to avoid this sort of like seat stay detachment or this or that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, nothing's harder than riding on clapped out streets on bikes. Yeah. Um, I've seen everything break, you know, and I guess as far as frame failures, yeah, you'd see a lot of seat tubes above the, you know, bottom bracket lug, down tubes behind the head tube lug, even head tubes, you know, surprisingly behind the down tube, head tube lug, um, uh, chain stays a lot, you know, some of the side tack, uh, seat stays, like you said, you mm-hmm. know, would break. Um, so yeah, like being aware of those places, definitely, you know, makes you aware of what you, you know, want to use in those places. You know, I always file the bottom of the down tube, head tube lug near down to, you know, nothing. So there isn't a stress riser there Mm -hmm. from the transition from the lug to the down tube. And, uh, you know, also it's nice having tubing that's a lot stronger than say uh you know just cyclex or 531 but mm-hmm. that also combined with like a production environment using a ton of heat could make the joint weaker too so you know 
just being aware of your heat control now, uh, I think <laughs> automatically makes a stronger joint than yeah. maybe a production situation. But, you know, also seeing, you know, things that wear on frames, you know, cable stops, uh, you know, all the cable stops and things that bolt on a frame, I try to use stainless. So even, you know, if it isn't masked off, you know, if it chips, it isn't going to rust because you'd see, you know, cable stops that would chip and then there'd be rust all around them. And then they would just, you know, eventually eat through the frame. So, yeah, having seen so many different instances of just wear and fatigue and things either breaking or rusting, you can kind of address that with, uh, you know, stainless bits, stronger mm -hmm. tubes here or there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of messengers ended up on track bikes. I mean, it's the simplest type of frame. I mean, I started messenger on a mountain bike, a full suspension mountain bike at that. And, <laughs> you know, the fork blew out. Then I had a rigid fork with rear suspension. Then the rear end tab broke off the bottom bracket. It was a GTRPS2, and they had these little tabs on there, and that broke. And then I ended up on a road bike, and then your gears just start wearing out and failing. And then I ended up on a single speed. Uh -huh. And, you know, then you're riding your bike so much that you would wear your rims down you know <laughs> your rims would peel off and then i saw my first track bike at the messenger world championships in dc and i was like what's that that doesn't have anything to fail yeah and you know that, that fall i went out and bought a track frame at trexler town and you know moved on to that and Essentially, the only thing that's going to wear out is your tires and your drivetrain and, you know, bottom brackets and stuff. But you don't have to worry about brake pads. You don't have to worry about a lot of things that are going to wear out. So it's just yeah. really the most utilitarian piece of equipment you can use. And having tight geometry um, is really great for just following through traffic. You know, you're never really going super fast, but you want something that can handle really well in tight spaces. And the control you're going to get on a track bike is much higher once you're skilled at riding one because it's almost like a stick shift versus an automatic. I mean, you can control the bike mm -hmm. with back pressure on your tire. You're going to have better traction in the rain because... You know, you can always kind of push back on your pedal a little bit and see how slick the roads are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's always a place in my heart for a track bike. <laughs> I loved it pretty much all I rode when I was a messenger. Yeah. Sadly, I don't ride one much anymore. I prefer going out in the country and riding and going fast downhill. So, yeah, that's something that you can't really do on a track bike. Yeah, I got into bikes in like 2009, 2010, and so I was late to the sort of like fixie trend or whatever, but like, uh, you know, they mechanically they spoke to me and aesthetically they spoke to me and, and uh, you know, so I had to get a fixie. So I converted an old road bike and then later I built a, a track bike or two and um, 
and I loved it. And where I lived at the time in Michigan was very flat. And then I moved to Syracuse, New York, and it's super hilly. And pretty quickly, I got tired of it because it's like, you know, you don't want to put a brake on your track bike. You, know, you don't want to drill it out for a brake. But then you're you're expending all this effort to like safely go down a hill. And I just got I got sick of that. So I, I haven't ridden one in a while. Yeah. But I miss <laughs> it because it's 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 so much fun. You know, it's just so simple, and uh, you know, you get that that nice connection and. Uh, the you know the bike even if you build a steel fork and and all this stuff it still ends up being super lightweight because there's just nothing on it. Yeah, yeah, no, they're they're a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and most people will think, oh, going up a hill is so hard. Don't climbing is great. It's going down the hill. Yeah, you know? yeah, you're putting in all this effort to just maintain control, and it's like, I don't know. To me, it's just like you know, going down a hill should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> and it is if you if you don't concern yourself with what would happen if you need if you needed to you know like if there's like a stop sign at the bottom of the hill or something you know and it's like let's hope there's no traffic <laughs> yeah yeah you you know you have to put in a lot of time to be able to stop quickly even yeah. going down hills yeah so um yeah you know one of the things that I wanted to talk about is that a lot of builders, especially newer builders, really struggle to differentiate themselves. And, um, and I think, you know, even people who've been around a while, it can be, it can be hard to do that. And when I look at your work, that's not something that I see. Like, I feel like your work is definitely distinct from, from other frame builders. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's like, you're one of the more, uh, you know, sort of distinct builders, your style, the, the way that you, you do the Bishop logos on things and the paint, you know, you're not doing the paint, but something about the paint always just looks like, it makes it look like it's one of your bikes. And, um, I don't know anyway, like, you know, what, what is it to you that you're thinking about with, you know, cause I don't know if that just happens by accident or something, but like, you know, your bikes look very finished and like, you know, fully baked, uh, you know, like what goes into the, the thought process of like getting there? Yeah, <laughs> I think a combination of things, but, you know, I think having seen so many bikes, I mean, like art or anything else, you you know when something's right, even if you can't put a finger on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that has been a culmination in my life, I guess. My father builds model trains for a living. Um, wow. So I grew up building models, and I mean, he was an artist as well. So I think just having an eye for detail and, you know, restraint, that's a big key. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's, I tell people, you know, you get these customers and they send you a list of stuff, and I'm like, you know, if you took every ingredient you like in the kitchen and threw it in one pot, it's not going to taste good. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to assemble it in the right way for it to work. And, you know, that's been a learning process as well. You know, I think when you first start, you want to appease everybody. And sometimes, you know, I've definitely done things that I, I was I regretted <laughs> because I was like, oh, I'll do this for you. And then I'm like, you know. I really, it's not something I would normally do. Mm-hmm. And you have to believe in yourself enough and realize the reason somebody's coming for you for a bike is for a bike 
you know, the bike you build. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm at a point now where I'm like, all right, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> and it's going to turn out well because I, you know, I know, I know what it's going to look like mm-hmm. versus somebody being like, yeah, do this. And uh, I'm like, eh, I don't know. You know, I feel like I've always managed to, you know, restrain enough so it hasn't been a monstrosity. But the bikes that I have full control over and customers let me do, you know, the designs the way I want turn out the best mm-hmm. and they're happy. So, you know, so sometimes the design can change a little bit throughout the build process because I might have an idea and, you know, try it or mock it up and be like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it like that. And it'll change a little bit. But overall, I just try to, boil things down to their bare minimum, execute things at the highest level possible. And that alone can change the overall aesthetic and finished product. You know, you can, like I said before, just execute a bike that you may have seen that was done in production at the highest level thin out the lugs, refine things, make sure all the shorelines are clean and, you know, prep properly. And the finished product is going to have a whole different feel and look. Even though they're almost the identical, you know, lug and whatnot, Mm -hmm. it's just the finishing and time spent executing it at the highest level just changes that. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's kind of hard to say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot of elements. You, you do really well the, like the branding and the badging and stuff, you know, you have a really nice head badge and you carve the Bishop logo into the bottom bracket shell and you have some seat stay bridges. I think that have that, little uh the little graphic on there and i think it because it's like sort of it's all tied together uh in different places on the bike i think that really uh gives it this sort of like cohesive kind of um i don't know just looks a little bit more like i think uh there's a lot of people who can you know do a really nice joint you know a really nice weld or braze or something and they maybe they understand fitting really well and design and they got a lot of the pieces together but like when you look at the finished product some products look a little bit more like finished than others and I think that was something for me that I struggled with for a long time where like I was going through you know 80% of the work pretty well of making a bike frame but it just never really looked as finished as I wanted it to or something and Definitely, I, I'm sure some of that just comes with experience and going through the process a bunch. But like, I see your bikes and they just look like very finished to me, and uh, I always admire that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, uh, you do it very well. <laughs> there, there. I think. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those little, you know, logo branding definitely is comes from the Italian bikes, you know, that I rode. You know, uh-huh. all those old Italian bikes. You know, they have pentagram. 
pentagraphs everywhere, you know, four crowns, seat stay caps, bridges, mm-hmm. you know, they really tied in the branding with the logos. And that's, you know, when I originally started, I wanted to find something like that, that I could carve in the lugs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So the whole Bishop piece kind of came into play, you know, through that because you can't really carve a B in there because you got two little middle pieces that, you know, you can't carve. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, you know, I was really into that and, you know, I think it works well for the branding. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, like Colnago had the spade and, Curtiotti had the star and the G and all that stuff. So I was always into that and definitely heavily influenced by it and wanted to pull something like that into the the frames. Yeah. Um, so it had a lot to do with it. And then, you know, later, the more you go down the rabbit hole of frame building, you know, seeing those frames and being rudimentary as far as the way they're built, you know, seeing the American builders from the 70s, you know, Eisentrout and Peter Johnson and, you know, Mark Danucci and Tom Ritchie, Bruce Gordon, all those guys. I mean, mm-hmm. the love refinement they were doing in the 70s was amazing, you know, and it just completely transformed the way the lugs looked. And I really gravitated towards that. I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. And, you know, doing the fillets on the lugs and giving those lugs a really smooth transition, mm-hmm. you know, really spoke to me. So, you know, yeah, that, that, I, I love that. I, that's something I never tried, but I always noticed that about your work is the, the bronze, the brass fillet that you put on the lug just totally changes the way that it looks on the bike. And I think, yeah, it makes it look gorgeous. Yeah, it's just a lot of work. <laughs> You're like building the bike twice, you know? Yeah. I mean, back when it was originally done, they were using press lugs. So, in fact, it had, you know, they were trying to build up strength on these soft, you know, lugs. And, uh, you know, so doing it on a cast lug, obviously it makes the joint a little stronger, but, you know, it's more an aesthetic thing. But yeah, it, just, it, it really does look good. It's, a lot yeah. of work, but I like that aesthetic, so I, I do it when requested. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of, like, craftsmanship and stuff, what kind of, like, wh- who who influenced you? I mean, you said that your your dad uh, makes makes model trains. Does, like, is that part of what, uh, you know, I mean, you know, we, we all have, like, I don't know, inspiration or like, uh, some, somebody does something well and it inspires us. And then, uh, you know, kind of sets the bar for what we want to do or something like who, uh, who, who was it that you've noticed in your life that, that kind of like help you get a sense of what quality of work you wanted to produce? Uh, well, <laughs> I always want to produce the highest quality possible. Uh, yeah. I've just, in anything I've done, you know, I did carpentry work. And I think that's one of the things when I was a messenger, I missed, you know, I enjoyed riding a bike and making a living riding a bike. Not a lot of people have that opportunity, but I missed working with my hands. Um, you know, obviously 
growing up building models. You know, when I did build models, I enjoyed building them at the highest level possible. There's like, you know, a whole niche there of scratch building. So you get the model kit and then you essentially, you know, anything that was cast into the plastic, like springs or something like that, you'd cut that off and replace it with a real spring. So you would take, you know, the the model to the highest level possible. And now they have acid etched and all these parts that you can buy. Um, When early on, you had to make a lot of it from other things. You know, you just find springs off of something else and use it for the model, guitar strings, Mm -hmm. stuff like that, which, you know, is fun to do. But I think I've always just had this, (laughs) <laughs> urge to make things the best I could possibly make them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've always appreciated, you know, nice high-end things that I couldn't afford. So I just <laughs> pour over them, you know, yeah. it could be cars, knives, watches, you know, whatever. But, you know, I just look at things obsessively. And I think in turn, you know, that make the imprint on your mind of, you know, like I said, you know when something's right and when something isn't. And if filing something to get to that point, it might start off and you're like, oh, I don't know. And then by the end, you're like, wow, this looks great. And, you know, getting to that point just is something, you know, that takes time. Yeah. But I always feel like I was able to get there with the frame building and other things I did. Um, you know, my aesthetic may not be for everybody and other frame builders out there may make something that appeals to someone else, but I think that's what makes the market cool. And, you know, I never want a customer that doesn't want a bike like the ones I build and I'll tell mm-hmm. them, you know, you know, <laughs> Don't send me pictures of someone else's bike and say, this is what I want. I'm like, get in touch with that person or find another builder that's going to build you a bike that's going to be closer to what that person's doing. Mm -hmm. And I think for every builder, you know, to differentiate themselves is going to be either work in progress. I mean, you know, there's so many different types of bikes out there now. um, And there's builders that do really great jobs with, those types of bikes. Um, and I recommend going to one of them. If, you know, someone comes to me and says, this is what I want. I'm like, well, this guy's doing a great job. Call him up. You know, <laughs> um, I've been, <laughs> I've been down the road yeah. with people that you're like, this relationship, this isn't going to work out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, early on, you're trying to take any work you can to make a living. I'm fortunate enough to be in a place where I can, be picky enough mm-hmm. that it's going to benefit both me and the customer at the end of the day because yeah. we're both after the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, going back to the influences, you know, I think everything from art to design, industrial design, car, furniture, any of that stuff. Um, I mean, there's too many to yeah. list. It's more than just than just old Italian bikes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, architecture, furniture. I mean, when I tell people 
to send me images of things that they like. I'm like, it can be a boat, it can be whatever. Just send me pictures. It gives me an idea and feel of something mm-hmm. that you know will give me an idea of what they're going for and kind of uh, you know the overall design of the frame. And, yeah, you know how it turns out because you know people generally compile images that in my mind are all cohesive but they could be a car a boat an airplane a watch whatever but they have a certain feel to them Mm -hmm. that makes sense to me i mean it's hard to explain i'm more of a visual person than i am a you know write me a list of what you want (laughs) um so that works for me and it's you know works for communication with the customer well i think yeah. Um, I got one more question on my list that I'll ask you, which is, um, you know, it's wh- what advice do you have for newer builders? Or you could also think of it, you know, what advice would you give to your younger self on your sort of frame building journey? Uh, you know, things that you struggled with or things that you see other people struggling with uh, that you have some more perspective on now that you've been doing it a while. <laughs> uh I have to jump, <laughs> jump onto Bruce Gordon's band, bandwagon. Don't do it. No. Um, <laughs> Just be a plumber. <laughs> be a plumber. Um, you know, it depends on what you <laughs> what you want. If you want a lot of money, don't do it. Um, you know, uh, I like Carl's saying from Vicious Cycle. He's like, I've been successful at everything except making money <laughs> um, in this industry. So, I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough way to make money. I mean, bikes or anything else, craft that you have to physically produce something. It's difficult. Um, I think, you know, the bikes that I build are, you know, lug or lugged bikes. Um, you know, they're a lot of work Yeah. and there's a lot of time, you know, and, and it's hard to charge enough for all that time. Um, I mean, you obviously have to like it. <laughs> if you don't like it, definitely don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I enjoy it, you know, and I go, I mean, I think that some of the bicycle technologies now can be a little frustrating, you know, that yeah, definitely. definitely make it hard on you. Um, you know, cooling up as a small builder is expensive and you know yeah well especially when there's new like disc brake and hub standards and bottom bracket standards you know every six months there's some new thing and uh and you know your customers are going to want it and even if your customers didn't want it you know shimano and sram and all these companies don't just keep producing things the same way if you want the the current build stuff you're going to need to adopt new standards too and it's uh it's exhausting yeah especially if you're building bikes out of steel in sort of a classic style where it's like, you know, it's not the same thing. If you were, if you were like, you know, building carbon fiber frames for people, then of course that'd be part of the appeal is that it is new and that it is, there's some benefit, but you know, what you're doing is more of a classic style. And so it's like, whether or not they come out with a new disc brake standard doesn't really affect the thrust of what you're doing other than that you need to get parts on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do have a little safeguard there. Um, but you know, (laughs) 
Yeah, the disc bikes have been a big thing, you know, um, and the standard finally settling down. I'm happier to work with it, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, you know, there was post mount for a while there in the road world, and then everyone's a flat mount. So essentially, all those, you know, road bikes with post mounts are almost obsolete at this point because everything went to flat mount i don't even think Ace, you know has a post mount version so you'd have to put like a mountain bike caliper on there which would work you know i'm not saying it's completely obsolete but it's like i didn't want to jump on board in that transition Mm -hmm. um because you know steel bikes you you know i want to build bikes that are gonna be around for a long time and not become obsolete, but I guess that's near impossible. So as a smart frame builder, you'd want to build all those bikes in the middle. So people would want to buy the newest, latest (laughs) (laughs) when things change to be like, yeah, it's time for a new bike. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's, I'd say, you know, being a frame builder is, you know, there's so many different facets to the business that, you know, you have to be a frame builder, you have to be customer relations, you have to do so many different things that, you know, you definitely want to think about that because, you know, frame building is just a small, small portion yeah. of the overall business. It's the one I enjoy the most, mm-hmm. you know, and I enjoy talking to customers and, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, you got park manufacturers you got to talk to, you know, suppliers, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to juggle all that, which, you know, can be difficult. Um, you know, finding the time because, you know, making those phone calls, talking to these people, you know, you have to charge enough money to offset that time. And yeah. you do, you don't know how much time each customer is going to take sometimes. Some customers are easy. They're like, do, you know, do your thing. Then you have other people that want to micromanage and talk to you every day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you got to pump the brakes a little with them and be like, look, I got to build your bike here, you know, at some (laughs) point. You can't talk about it and exchange a million emails Uh and, you know, not be compensated for it in some way. Um, yeah, I mean, as much as I hate to say it, now I have a headset, so I'm usually working when I'm talking to people. I never thought I'd ever have something like that. <laughs> I always hated seeing anyone who had one. Uh-huh. And now I don't go outside with it, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, it has made, you know, multitasking easier. I mean, it comes down to minutes, you know, for yeah. me. I mean, now that I have a family and a daughter, you know, it's like I work, then you're, you know, with the family. So I don't have as much time as I used to. I mean, I'd work a hundred hour weeks, you know, there Uh, initially, especially I was still messengering full time and I was building full time almost. (laughs) So I'd get up, work, run around, do some deliveries, come back, work. And, uh, yeah, it was exhausting and somewhat miserable but 
you know, at that time I realized, you know, I did a lot of legal work in the messenger business, which is really where all the money is. Um, but with e-filings coming in, you know, the writing was on the wall that that was going to dry up mm-hmm. and I was going to have to do something else. So, you know, getting into frame building, I realized I was going to have to learn a lot as fast as possible, which has meant putting in a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first couple of years, uh, I was pretty exhausted, but <laughs> I guess it paid off. Now I'm a broke frame builder. Now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's tough. It's yeah, tough. it I is mean, tough. You know. That's that's the sense you get from just about everyone you talk to. Is uh, you know, even the people who are uh, who are really um, killing it, making the most beautiful bikes, and have distinct brands. It's it's still tough. Uh, it's it's not an easy business at all. <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 hard to say. You know, it's it's hard, I and mean, you have to weigh what you value you know mm-hmm. um my father always said he's like you know you got to find something you love doing and try to make money doing it otherwise you know you're going to be spending 40 hours doing something you don't like trying to make it up on a two-day weekend the, the math doesn't work yeah um so <laughs> I, uh, you know, I can appreciate that. Sometimes I wish I had a job that I just went <laughs> to and had paid time off and, yeah. you know, I made more money. But I don't know. I think it's an ongoing struggle yeah. for me sometimes. I mean, I'm sure, you know, when I do enjoy it, I really enjoy it. And, you know, then there's times when I'm like, man, I'm just working my ass off and scraping by and that's not a lot of fun. Um you know, I think when it was, when I didn't have a kid, it didn't, it wasn't as, uh, you know, strenuous. <laughs> yeah. Having a kid and having to support another individual definitely takes things to another level. I mean, yeah. I don't care about having a ton of money at all, but, you know, having enough money to support your family is another thing. I mean, yep. so, you know. Yeah, things things change in that way. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, have, have a backup plan. I'd say that's probably the best exa- <laughs> the best uh, <laughs> advice I can give anybody. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I appreciate that uh, advice because you know. What got me interested in bike frame building was like the romanticism of, you know, working in your own shop and making a product that's beautiful, trying, you know, I just, I think I relate to what you're saying about like always trying to make the best thing you can make because, you know, when I, when I was really interested in photo or playing guitar or, you know, making uh, uh, bike frames or tools or whatever it is, like I'm always trying to do the best thing that I can and, um, you know, and th- and that's one part of it, and then and then there's a whole other lifestyle that comes with it, and a whole set of uh, you know circumstances that come with uh, trying to make that thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think a lot of the people in the industry, you know, are definitely birds of a feather on some <laughs> some level. You mm-hmm. know, and I and I do love the industry, and I love 
you know, the other frame builders. I like the camaraderie. I think that, you know, everyone gets along, you know, for well, yeah. uh, for the most part, you know, I don't, I don't feel competitive with other builders. I just feel, you know, again, because everyone has their own aesthetic that there's kind of, there's enough customers out there that are going to gravitate to the builder that, you know, maybe visually more than anything else, you know, is attractive to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I think it works well. And the guys that have been doing it for a long time, um, you know, I look up to, I mean, Peter Weigel is pretty amazing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. His yeah, bikes are always incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Richard Sachs and guys like that that are making a living off frame building and still building, um, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, not always easy. (laughs) Yeah, certainly not. Yeah, well, you're going to be at the Philly Bike Expo, and I also will be. And so uh, be a good time. We can uh, hang out and get a beer at one of the after parties and... um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Philly, yeah. probably the great show. Yeah. One of my favorites. Yeah, it's a great show. Yeah, and when you live ne- near to it, then you know that it can be the show for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Bina has elevated the show to a national level, and she's done a fantastic job. I mean, I've been doing the show since it started in the armory, which was like being in somebody's closet. Uh, it was so dark you could barely see a bike in there yeah um and to bring it to the convention center and attract all the national uh brands it's been fantastic because philly is you know only less than two hours away so you know it's definitely made you know doing shows more affordable versus traveling across the country to the hand the national you know yeah. Nav show yeah and uh you know now that the media is there that's really taking it to the next level i mean that was the only thing that was missing there for a couple of years is getting you know all the blogs and magazines and stuff like that out there because that's always a huge a part of you know like a hand-built show and you know, a major, it makes it, you know, more cost effective because you can go to the show, get, you know, all the people that walk through the show, mm-hmm. but then to get some, you know, media that's going to go up on a blog or something, you know, your, your uh, visibility can be out there for several weeks versus just two days. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's been big. So, yeah. yeah, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be. I always like the Philly show. You know, you can hang out with all the other builders and whatnot. And yeah. Well, and that's where I met you and your wife back in like 2014, and um, and I uh, I thought it was so cool because I always looked up to you, and then I got to uh, go out to dinner with you and a bunch of other industry folks, and um, I don't know, that was really cool. <laughs> I really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, you know, no. There's a social component <laughs> there, which like, it's not just that you get to see the bikes, but you get to meet the people who actually made them. And that's, that's really cool. 
Yeah, no, and I think it's really important too because, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, I think that's important for, you know, any builder that wants to build us to do the shows because, you know, customers can, you know, meet the people behind the product and, you know, it not only comes down to the aesthetic of the product, but, you know, maybe the conversation you had with that individual, you're like, I really want to work with this person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are all different. So, you know, finding a builder that you're like excited to work with is also important. Mm-hmm. And I think the shows help people figure that out. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 I think all the builders are, you know, pretty cool people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? overall and uh yeah yeah well it's gonna it's gonna be a good show man i'm excited to see you there i'm excited to see the bikes and uh and the after parties are always a good time and um uh yeah i'll see you then um thanks for being on the show man 